Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Welcome back to the Ag Tech So What podcast. Today, my guest is Will McSmith, who is a farmer and also a bit of a tech entrepreneur. When we spoke, he was in the middle of joining news, and it was a convenient excuse, I think, for him to come in and, and get out of the wind and, and have a chat with me, but I was really grateful for him to, to take a break and do that. In the episode, we talk about his journey into the tech world and, and some lessons he's learned from building technology that's uh, solving a problem for, for him on farm and, and trying to push the industry forward and what he's learned and what challenges he's had in, in exploring that, that tech world. He also, at the end of the episode, told me a great story, and so I had to switch on the recorder again and, and capture that around um, adoption. And one of the things that gets talked about a lot is is the different age of farmers and what role uh, that plays in technology adoption. So Will had a great story uh, about that as well. Without further ado, today's episode with Will McSmith. Hey, Will. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, I'd love to start with a little bit of your background um, and tell me a little bit about your uh, your farm. Okay, so um, I grew up here um, on family farm and uh, went to school in Orange and then um, I went over to Canada for a year and worked on a grain cropping property over there um, and then came back and went to UNE in Armadale and did a Bachelor of Agribusiness um, and after after that I went up to Central Queensland and worked um, in a feedlot up there for AACO for I did a couple of stints up there um, and then came home for six months, I suppose, um, and then went back to Emerald and worked on a grains research project up there for 18 months, um, working for the Queensland uh, DPI. And then after that, uh, travelled for probably eight months overseas and then came back again home and have been home ever since and we had leased some extra country when I came home then and so yeah I've been home probably for uh, since probably 2009 I think so yeah nearly nearly 10 years. Right so a couple questions there what did you do um, on the feedlot what kind of jobs did you have? Um, I did a stint on the livestock side, so and the animal husbandry stuff, um, induction and pen writing, those sort of things, and then did a did a stint in the feed crew as well. So um, everything to do with preparing feeds to to delivering them out. So um, yeah, it was it was an, it was a sort of I think it was about a twenty thousand head feedlot at the time there. So it was quite a big setup and quite interesting to see how it all 
how it all was run. Yeah. When you were studying at UNE, did you know you kind of wanted to go into the feedlot world? Did you know you wanted to do stuff in, in sheep? Um, or was it kind of a, sounds like you've done some stuff in, in cropping as well. Like what, what were you certain of what you wanted to do or where there's a bit of indecision along the way? Um, I think there was plenty of indecision. I've probably liked, probably like a lot of young guys, the cropping side was more attractive maybe earlier on. Um, we had a merino stud here at the time and sheep certainly weren't really my interest then. Um, so yeah, cropping's probably been a big interest, but that filled a gap in some uni holidays when we didn't have any crop to harvest. And then, um, yeah, well, I just found it quite interesting trying to maximise the outputs out of there by what they were they, they were doing with their controlled feeding. So it was interesting just to just to be part of that at, at the ground level, I suppose, and just get a bit of an understanding how the cattle cattle side of things worked anyway, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about controlled feeding. I mean, you, you know me a bit and my naive um, questions here. So what's the what would the alternative be, like just kind of putting stuff out there and not controlling amounts? Is, is that the kind of difference? Um, that, I think they were playing around with timings a bit um, and so it was bunk reading maybe, and that was probably more just a management thing, trying to make, give as much, feed out as possible without any wastage sort of thing so you're managing what their estimated intake would be for a day and no more or no less type thing but also just from a confined feeding point of view so obviously higher cost having them on a total fed diet so making minimizing the cost associated with that and maximizing the output so trying to playing around with different feeds but also just trying to you know it's quite tight margins, I suppose. So it's making sure that everything's done as, as best as possible. Yeah. And is there um, kind of technology involved in that? Like how, how does that actually get done in, in practice? Are you like weighing it or there digital stuff? Um, like how does that work? Yeah. So when I was there, um, they had um, just purchased, and this is a while ago now, I suppose. So I'm sure there's a lot more done in the cattle stuff since then, but um they were using batch boxes then, so that was just an efficiency point of view for a labour, but we were just feeding in trucks every day into bunks. Um, and so the feed was prepared on a daily basis, steam flaked. So there's an efficiency in usage, I suppose, from managing the grain like that. Um, but yeah, it was mainly about labour efficiencies, I suppose, that they were really trying to, I guess, get hold of at that point. Well, not mainly, but... Um, that's the part that I really saw. Like they were just trying to make it as fast as possible to do the job um, and get the most output from the cattle from from what they were being fed. Yeah, interesting. And um, so you you said some research in the grain space as well. What kind of research um, were you doing, or what kind of questions were you trying to answer? Yeah, so that was a. Um, a, a, a local grains research project through uh, Queensland DPI at the time, funded by GRDC. Um, but it was a, a producer-driven group. There was, I think, there was eight um, separate groups within Central Queensland, um, and each group, each sort of focus group, we would go to every few years, I think, and and um, they would find the most relevant issues at the time and then find a common theme amongst those groups and then um, undertake trial work to help um, 
to help uh, you know find solutions to those issues. So I was really producer driven, and I thought it was um, I've I've kind of remembered that going forward in the stuff that we're doing now that um, a lot of the com a lot of the big research stuff, while it's very interesting, the, uh, there's probably a lot of more pressing issues sometimes that that um, farmers sort of like to think, oh, I'd like that, but I've, this is my bigger issue at the moment. So for them at a time, when I was up there, Feathertop Roads was a grass that started to become really difficult to control. And so out of nowhere, it became a, a real issue across all those groups. So we undertook trial work to you know, sort of help write a best management practice on how to best control that. So it was really, um, the producers were all seeing that issue and so we tried to find a solution for them, for that locally. And that, it doesn't really, it's not really an issue, it's not an issue at all where we are here. So it was really focused to Central Queensland and those guys up there, which was which was good because it helped, you know, quick, quite quickly you could find this is the best way to deal with it and, and we could move on from then. Yeah, interesting. Um, I think the challenge that the research organizations have and, and folks like DPI is that balance of being kind of reactive to an issue that is happening right now. Like how do you find a solution to something that's a big problem now versus like proactive about the issue that's going to come up in the next, you know, two, three, five, ten years? And how do you kind of balance that, um, like those different timelines? I imagine that's really hard to do, especially when something is pressing today. But if you don't kind of do the research for the bigger things that are coming down the track, then, you know, you don't have those solutions when, when those things become issues. Yeah, definitely. I think they, yeah, I guess they both have to be run concurrently. You're you're while you're pressing pressing issue is this grass you can't lose sight of that there are bigger picture issues that need to be maintained along the way too so yeah you you don't want to get too focused on one particular weed for one particular area that is only around for one particular time in the year so and just completely write off everything else that's important but yeah it was it's there's the bigger issues that are definitely yeah, you don't want to lose sight of some of those sorts of things. And, and I guess the trial work for them runs probably longer than some of the trial work we were doing on, on some of those shorter sort of issues. Yeah. So you've spent a bit of time in Canada, you said, and, and then traveled a bit as well. Um, any observations or anything you found interesting about different kind of production systems um, overseas versus Australia? Did you um, bring any learnings back or anything on the other side that you said, we're definitely not going to do that because we do it way better here? Um, from the cropping side in Canada, uh, it's just the thing that I found really interesting for them is they were just, when you go, when the windows open, it's flat out until it's done. And then when the next window opens, so if it was planting, as soon as you could get on the ground, you were going, it was such a short um, growing season from a time point of view, but long days, we were quite a long way north. So um, everything happened like you just finish sowing and turn around and spray everything. It's more staggered here and more controlled. But um, in saying that, I think we've gotten to the point now when you have to take the opportunities. Our different For different reasons, our rainfall um, was a lot more limiting than what they had at the time up there. They had subsoil moisture coming out of winter, obviously, and so they would have good planting conditions as soon as they could get on the ground, whereas we've really got a timing still really crucial here for us and making sure that as soon as the windows open for something, 
we need to be able to go. So if, if that means starting all the way back at harvest with residue management and making sure that we've got good ground cover and good water storage over our summer. So when I want to plant that crop, I can plant it sort of thing. And within reason, obviously, if it doesn't rain, there's not a lot you can do, but, but giving yourself the best chance to get a crop away yeah. on time as, as soon as possible. Yeah, certainly that timeliness that they had, they had such small windows to get things right. And so when they were going, it was everything had to be perfect. So it was quite interesting. It was just such a short period of time. It was from sort of, um, I think it was late April, early May, and then sort of a month off in July sort of thing, and then basically started harvest after that. And everything basically had to be done by, I think it was sort of late October, or you didn't get it off until the following year. So, which I think looks like this year they're having some trouble in the north. I think they're back on there now, but I saw some photos of canola in windrows that look pretty covered in snow. So it didn't look fun. Yeah. And do you, um, when you say you saw some photos, was that on like social media? Like, do you kind of keep track of, of different um, farms overseas or you have contacts there? Like, um, is that something you still kind of pay attention to on social media or how do you do that? Yeah, I um, stay in touch with the guy I worked for over there, but also I'm, I'm new to Twitter, but um, <laughs> I've been, I, I like um, seeing a lot of th those guys seem to just, Maybe they've got so much time in their machines they sit on Twitter taking photos. But I do like seeing um, their crops are so different than what we grow here. A lot of corn and soybeans and stuff. So um, I, I find it quite interesting and working out their yields and stuff for dry land sort of things. It blows me away what they can grow. Those North American guys can grow on, on dry land crops over there compared to what we could. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, and are when you they whinge about... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just thought that I was watching some guys saying, oh, it's the driest year ever. We've only had 22 inches or something. And I, and that was for their growing season. And I was thinking, 22, we're at, we're at like, what, six maybe for the year? I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I was going to tease and ask if you're one of those guys that's on Twitter as like an anonymous bot or whatever that just follows people but you know we don't actually know who you are and don't know that you're lurking around or are you actually uh, participating <laughs> uh, i'm 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 a participant very <laughs> a more observer but i think the more especially with the work that we're doing now needs to be like i think it's yeah, interesting to be part of it and part of some of the conversations that go on um yeah, I think from the most part, I see that the, it's quite interesting, the sharing of knowledge and people suggesting, oh, you know, someone poses a question and 20 random people answer it and um, it's all different ways. Yeah, it's quite quite interesting. So I'm on, I think I've only been on for about two months, so you can probably cut me some slack for being anonymous at the moment. <laughs> all right, fair enough. So um, you, you mentioned a couple of times what you guys are up to now, um, but but tell us about that, kind of what's... Um, what's keeping you busy these days? Where's your head at? Yeah, so um, I guess uh, when I came home, we had a strong cropping focus. Um, and last year, our lease on a lot of the country we had ended and um, we'd sort of been ramping up the livestock side again, our sheep side of things. So, and over that period of time, uh, we'd been starting Hamish, who's my business partner with Crown. He's an animal nutritionist and 
I'm constantly asking questions about why, what about this? Why not this? My sheep knowledge was pretty limited. Um, and having a strong cropping focus, you have a really good handle on inputs and outputs to the dollar, to the egg, to the hectare, whatever it is, and, and year on year, a lot of data. And on from our sheep side, which is mainly wool, um, is a lot of output data. Like we measure a lot of things, measure as much as we can, but um, it's all output stuff. We don't really know, aside from our operating costs, what it costs to get that and feed being being a huge part of that. Um, we're just making assumptions and about and even yeah. So we started to think about that and, and look into that a bit further and which sort of led on to us um, building a facility here, I guess, over a two-year period, um, which measures individual feed intake uh, and live weight at the same time, and that's all real-time. So every time an animal leaves the stall where they feed from, um, that piece of information gets sent to the cloud and allocated against that individual animal's tag number. So, um, yeah, we sort of playing in that feed efficiency conversion space at the moment. And, and for a few reasons, I mean, there's a few aspects to that. There's there's feed, I suppose. So there's looking at better ways or different types of feed to feed. And then there's the environmental side, which is what effect does shearing have on animal performance and intake production, I suppose, and then, or, or water or heat. And, and so we can look at cost benefits of ways to manage that and then there's the genetic side um, which is okay these animals are inherently more efficient let's select for them and try to reduce I guess our inputs and whilst maintaining you know or increasing our outputs I guess. Right. So tell me, take me back to the, you know, sort of seeing this problem or, or seeing that there wasn't enough data to drive some of these decisions. Like that's, um, makes sense that you might observe that given your background, but then the decision to go build a bunch of technology and a whole system to measure this stuff. Like how, how did you make that decision? I, I can imagine just saying, oh, like I wish we knew it or someone else should do it or we'll see what kind of tech's out there. Like why did you decide to build it all yourself? Yeah, well, I think um, the advent of GPS and smartphones sitting in tractors for as long as I was uh, gives you plenty of time to be able to think about things and look at things. So we, But we had sheep in the feedlot um, here and we would have varying levels of performance and, and using growth rate as an indicator for performance I thought was pretty flawed given it's growing fast. But what does that tell you? It just tells you that it's, you know, it'll be gone sooner, but I don't know how much it's costing me to do that. Like it, it's it's performing better, but is it eating more to do that, or is it is it more efficient in doing that? So we we looked at that and and also um, supplementing use. And I guess the advent of well, I was not aware of a lot of the technology that's coming out. And just started googling and playing around and thought, oh, microcontrollers are cheap. I'll buy some and see if I can hook something together that'll, that can measure these things. So I'd looked into um, some units for measuring feed efficiency and was blown away by the cost and went, sort of thought, well, uh, nothing's going to get done um, if it's that expensive sort of thing to do it. So we just play, I hooked up, so 
some some microcontrollers together and got the peripheral devices to do the basic job of what I was trying to do. So uh, an animal's present, yes, read its tag, yes, measure the feed type thing. So we got the load cells and all those sort of things working and then it got well beyond me and we got a guy on board who sort of, um, who, who managed to get that process functional for us. But I guess it, it really stems from the question that you have animals in a feedlot and you have no idea how much they're eating and so what that cost of gain is. It's purely, you can do it as a mob base, but I wanted to know what the variation was within that and whether some of those, you know, we could select. I, I guess the bigger vision was if I set up a feedlot and I could set parameters for uh, for cost of gain, that way it could be profitable every day of the year regardless of feed costs. You might you might have um, less animals making the cut, but I, if I said if an animal's in there, it has to be growing at 250 grams a day for turnover and it has to be doing it at a conversion of less than four to one, which at those parameters will make me $15 a head, $20 a head, whatever it is. But if you're comfortable with that profit margin per head, then you could you could comfortably finish lambs, a percentage of those lambs that went into the feedlot, and then ones that didn't make that cut went back out on grass, which was a lot cheaper to finish them sort of thing. So it was just um, looked at looking at trying to do that probably. And how's it going? Have you been able to kind of crack that nut? Do you get to just set the parameters and then um, go off and watch watch the magic work, or is it still a bit of a work in progress? Yeah, so the idea was good. Um, I, uh, it's uh, it's turned probably. So the the system we've got up there at the moment's got 500 head capacity, 80 individual stalls. Um, in four pens at the moment, we can split it up to eight pens. But I think the cost of building that system at the moment probably outweighs the benefits gained from being able to make a bigger margin per head by selecting those animals. So until we can sort of get that system cost down a little bit, it'll probably be uh, more research focused at the moment. But it's certainly... Currently, as it is, we could do what I'd set out to do, but I don't think the benefits of of pure feedlotting at the moment would would justify having such an expensive system there. Yeah. And do you think that if you, like you mentioned, getting a guy in to help you, um, could you build it cheaper? Is it a expertise thing? You know, if, if you had sold this idea or concept to a a company that was expert in hardware and software, do you think it would make the difference or is it more just that the value proposition just really isn't there from an economic standpoint yet? Um, it's probably a bit of both there. I think um, the labor in the construction side of things is, is just a huge cost for us at the moment. The steel isn't too bad. The electronics aren't too bad, but I think if it's per stall, I think, labor in the construction as in the welding of those stalls and putting together of all that maybe makes up half of the total cost so and that leaves you with steel fencing um, electronics power it all it's just a big cost that we in australia anyway we can't probably get around and i don't think that it's overly expensive the way that we're getting it done at the moment it's just that's the cost of getting things built 
in Australia, I suppose. Um, so potentially, if it was built on a larger scale, um, we could, we've run some scenarios now after having put bigger numbers of sheep through and getting a better understanding of what the breakup is of animals that would make the cut and whether that's enough to justify the expense. And it's, it's probably close. I guess the unknown is how much cheaper could we build it if it was built overseas probably, yeah. which is a bit of a shame to, to have to do that um, potentially. But, but end of the day, if it, if you could make it um, a lot more viable, then it'd be, yeah, there's so much information that can get captured along the way too, which benefits other things as yeah, well. That's, so, what, that's what I was going to yeah. ask about. Like, have you talked to other producers or studs or others that would want to kind of use this in different ways, like for the data or you mentioned genetics, like are there other kind of um, ways that you could use this system to, to help people out and maybe there's a business model in there for you? Um, is that something you've looked at? Yeah, so probably currently at the moment, there's a few different avenues of interest. There's um, feed companies who are looking at testing their products and, and variations of their own products and, and competitors, I guess. So, um, and so looking at performance, improving, we've just done a trial um, for a feed company comparing two products. So um, yeah, there's certainly some R&D stuff from the feed company side, looking at improving performance. And then um, there's a lot of interest at the moment with the genetic side, so either from breed societies or soil evaluation sites, looking at um, at uh, the feed efficiency side of things um, and, and starting to gather some sort of benchmarking data, I guess, to look at, well, where are we now and, and what does it mean sort of thing. So from a, if I take it from Reno point of view, if I went and selected or if I collected information on feed efficiency of my ewes, where does that sit, sit for me given that, or who am I comparing against, which is probably nobody at the moment. But if we can do some sire evaluation sites and we get a lot of different sires from a lot of different parts around the country, then you can start to get some data to go, okay, well, my sheep sit at this compared to this person. And so we can then start to build a database that then gives people more incentive to use it from a genetic point of view too. And I guess there's a little bit of an issue in the fact that it's just another trait that needs to be measured along with a lot of them. And it's, so it's not something that you'll purely select for. And then that becomes quite expensive trait to measure. And how is that cost benefit weighed up as well compared to something like say fleece weight or micron, which can be tested really cheaply compared to feed efficiency, I suppose. Yeah. Um, interesting. So there's a lot of startups and tech companies looking at the kind of individual animal measurement. And I'm curious, like if you've, are, are there other things out there that you've seen that kind of look good that you could partner with, work with, or, um, I mean, you've obviously know the industry and, and are a producer yourself. And so you've gone on this journey of, of really knowing and understanding the problem, whereas some of these startups maybe don't know the problem as well. Are they, is there stuff out there that's kind of targeting this area, but missing the mark um, just too early to tell, like what's the kind of broader tech, I guess, landscape of, of solutions in this space. And is there anything kind of of interest? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot out there at the moment um, in terms, well, I guess there's a lot of software, stuff being done and that I find that really hard to know which one would suit me the best 
from a from a data capture point of view, I suppose, in terms of management stuff, I guess that falls back under. And I, I guess it's only as good as the data you collect, and I'm probably not the best person at manually collecting a lot of data. So if it was automatically collected, then, then that um, can become quite useful. So then that comes back to the devices that can do that sort of stuff um, for you. And so some of the things we've seen maybe based around cameras or and using cameras more than just an image using them to 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 do more detailed work, I suppose. Um, maybe we can ground truth them through our facility. So if they're asking questions about animal behavior or something and you use the camera and then we can actually track the actual, that actual animal performance, which then you may be able to use cameras to detect animal behavior and say, okay, an animal that behaves like this generally performs like this. And maybe, maybe, you know, it's just an idea, but maybe some of those things that are being presented can be ground truth in the, in the facility like we've got, but um, we're sort of in the process of expanding the, the Wi-Fi capability across our place, which will then um, facilitate, like the internet, we've only really had the NBN for probably 18 months and that's just opened up a whole new bunch of opportunities for us here. And so being able to spread that across the place now I think then creates a heap more opportunity for a lot of the emerging sort of tech stuff that seems to be coming through. Yeah. Why do you think it is well that you, like I, I talk to a lot of producers and um, you know, we hear this a lot that you know, farmers are busy and they might have these problems in the tech space, but until it's kind of a really clear return on investment, you know, you're not going to go spend a bunch of time or money, but it, it sounds like you, you kind of did the opposite. Like you didn't know if there'd be a return, but you still went and have spent a bunch of time and money on this. Why do you think that is that you've kind of wanted to explore this space more even though it wasn't kind of clear exactly how it would end up yeah and I probably learned that that's probably not the best thing to do we're probably lucky <laughs> that um yeah it's probably best to find out how solid that problem is before you actually go and start building things but um I guess the early part of it is inexpensive it's probably only my time that um it fell under it's not not too, not you know when you can use microcontrollers and weld your own things up it's it's not too expensive but um yeah i guess we had we had a pretty strong well, i guess we're relatively confident that it's an issue that needs some answers to and if we could i guess just build something small to give us some data to then know whether so we built a system that was five stalls which is about we basically put about five sheep per stall um, so pretty small capacity but straight away we were seeing the variation within and thought geez there's something something in this why are some of these so far one way in a performance point of view and or a cost of gain point of view and some so far the other way so that sort of gave us a little bit to expand upon and then we um, also applied for some funding which we which we got with MLA's producer innovation fast track program. So that's helped probably um, continue on uh, with with it in a bigger scale, I guess. Yeah. And so what do you, what if anything would you do differently kind of 
knowing what you know now and um, whether that's around like how you'd work with a software engineer or what you would test first like what, what would you if anything do differently yeah I think I think what we we're saying before is you would really just test the market in terms of asking questions to lots of people and people you don't know and really find out whether the issues that you think are an issue are actually issues for other people because uh, which I have found out that it's quite varying and something that you think is the biggest pain in the neck, other people couldn't care less about it. So um, you can say you could save a whole lot of time by just going and asking questions more than building something and then going, here, what do you reckon? And they look at it and think, no, I don't need that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, definitely um, can, yeah, just going out to people and, and just chatting with them. I mean, I think we probably talk to like-minded people. So you all discuss the same sort of issues, but it's within a closed, you know, a small group, I suppose. So you don't really understand how big an issue that is. And then in different locations, like geographic locations, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And so um, it, you've also, like, this is potentially kind of a new business, right? This is Crown as opposed to the farm. And you mentioned Hamish, your business partner, um, and another kind of engineer that's working with you is like, what's the team dynamic like in, in that it's not a, you know, a farming business, it's kind of uncertain and things are changing and, you know, different kinds of funding. Like, what has it been like to kind of work in that space and have a team kind of moving in the same or different directions, uh, managing a software engineer? How, how have you found that? Yeah, it's been interesting and, and completely different than what a family farm operates like. And um, I'm pretty autonomous, I suppose. It's just me and my father and we just both know what needs to be done. And um, yeah, there's so that's been a pretty big learning curve. Probably communication has been a big thing too. But it all, it's been, Hamish and I have been friends for a long time as well. And we both got probably different skill sets. He's his expertise sort of lies in the animal nutrition side and the data side of things. So it really helped uh, sort of, I'd come up with weird ideas and he'd say, either say, no, that's been done or, or no, that's not the issue. This is the issue sort of thing. So it was really helpful to go, what about this? What about this? And, and then have somebody to sound off who actually, um, you know, knew a lot more about, um, animal nutrition and, and probably the sheep industry in general than I did anyway. So he's very strict on the data side of things, and so and I'm probably you know I like building things, and so um, we both built them together in the end, I suppose. But I sort of I had the sheep and the space and to, to muck around with it in the early days. So uh, it's probably worked quite well that we're different skill sets, but it probably matches up quite well. Yeah. So when you think forward here, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, well, are you still, um, are you, is, does this business exist and you're working on it? Have you started a different tech business? Are you done with, with tech, you know, businesses entirely? Like, what do you see for, for the future in this space? Uh, no, I think it's been, it's been really interesting because it's something that I knew nothing about. And so, um, being involved with, with sort of this, and the MLA stuff has been so I think that it's I've learned a lot about 
hardware versus software and where the value lies and what is scalable and what's not scalable. And so, yes, I'm definitely just as interested in the tech side of things as I was before. I'm probably a bit more sceptical now and take my time to evaluate whether I need things or not instead of just buying them and finding out that that wasn't what I wanted. Um, And also, I think... I think at the end of the day, what we have at the moment is is really useful for this point in time. Um, but with the technologies that are evolving, it will probably be superseded by something else. So it's a matter of being involved with, with that, um, using that to maybe ground truth the next thing that does it faster, cheaper, um, and making it more available to producers because at, this, at the scale that we're at and the cost that we're at, it's it's good to build some data, but um, I'd like it to be just as widely used as any other trait. And so we probably need to come to a to to another solution that can find those answers for us um, a lot cheaper and easier. I guess just thinking about tech adoption and how that relates to farmers, I suppose. Uh, there's, you know, I guess there's an aging population of, of farmers or there's a lot of older guys that are farming that I, and so if I use my father as an example, he's very interested in the tech side and, and watching what we can do here and what we measure and how we can compare things. But it's just, it, it moves so fast that it's hard, hard for them to keep up when, um, you know, maybe getting some guys to use a smartphone is enough sort of thing. So it's just that even for myself and and probably the Twitter thing is a good example, being you, you, every generation that is below you are so much more computer savvy and tech savvy than the one probably that goes before them. So um, it's just, I think it's probably making it, user friendly as possible or or you're lucky i guess if you if a farmer has a younger son who can embrace it understands it a lot easier and and can take it on because i don't think it's that potentially that they don't want it or don't like it it's just how can they place it and be confident in using it i suppose yeah i think that confidence point is such an important one because um what i've seen or found is is people getting um like they can't even start or they don't want to start and so you you really don't even have a way to have that conversation where it's like this could do this or it could do this or how do we work on it it's like nah i'm not tech savvy like i don't even want to try and i think that down to kind of confidence to to have a go and you that you have enough base knowledge in how the smartphone works or how the software works or whatever that you are willing to tinker around yeah yeah and i think once they start you know if it starts with the smartphone and i guess um phone service is probably an issue in a lot of areas too but provided you've got reasonable phone service then i think once they get a handle on the smartphone then you just you can step things up a little bit and continue on so i don't think that they're not capable it's just finding somewhere for them to start and and be able to then you know, take the steps to go, okay, I can do that. Now I'll do this. And now I can use that to do that. So it's just building from the beginning and being able to understand how it all works, getting the confidence to use it and then moving to the next thing. Do you think that people would be interested in like some of these older farmers would be interested in like a tech 
class? Like, is there enough desire to learn about this stuff that they would actually kind of come learn about it? Or cause, cause I'm thinking about it from the startup perspective where if you have to build this software and then you're trying to get users on board and you want to get feedback and it's like, well, first they have to learn how to use the smartphone and then they got to get the internet. And like, it's like, Oh my God, I, I just go do something else. Like <laughs> it's just too hard. I'm wondering, is there like anything to kind of help, I guess, make this go faster or is it that the products just aren't good enough yet that no one's going to go spend time learning how to do it until it's like, I need to, I need to get this app because it's so good. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably a matter of one, finding the really big issues, like the main big issues that people, and maybe if it's just day-to-day data recording that, um, you know, quite simple to, to do once you get a handle on it and that's, you know, comes with a smartphone. So you, if it's as simple as that, I'm sure that you can then take it on. And it's the things that we use all the time too. So from a sheet point of view here, we use um, like an auto drafter, which collects a lot of information. So we've got an app that our sheepyards are connected via Wi-Fi. So as soon as we've finished, say, weighing a mob of sheep, that automatically gets emailed back to the office so that I, I can then go and analyse that data. So they're not overly complex things to do and I'm sure that they'd find them tie, quite easily tied in with what like they do as long as it's, you know, somebody just took the time to show them how they did it and because they're such repetitive tasks. So once you do it a few times, then you're doing the same thing every time. It, it becomes a lot easier. I think that's a really good reason why it's so important for people wanting to build technology to come see the farm. Cause once you've spent time and you're seeing like, Oh, they're like downloading this USB stick and then analyzing this data in the exact same way. It's like, well, we should just write some software to do that. Cause that's easy. But until you see yeah. how painful it is, you wouldn't know that that's even happening. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you can just make that, tra- that data transition a lot more seamless than, um, it makes it yeah not so clunky that I've got to plug the USB into this one, then I've got to walk back to the house, and then I've got to plug it into the computer there, and then that doesn't work. So yeah, if that data collection side of things is a lot more seamless, yeah, it it would make it. I think it would make the uptake maybe a lot more. And the same from the cropping side, we had uh, you know we were collecting yield data all the time, but it's what do you do with that? information (laughs) later on so i'm sure a lot of guys collect a lot of older guys drive headers and collect a lot of yield data and it's just sitting on the storage of the header going i'm not sure where where to use that sort of thing so yeah i think that's a like it's a joke that gets told like there's a lot of um uptake of technology but not a lot of kind of value coming from it especially in cases like that where yeah it's on the header but they're not actually you know, using it to make decisions or using it, using it to drive productivity. And so is that really adoption or is that just kind of default presence? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you say, probably the best thing to do is get the tech guys to come and just visit a whole different type of farms and see what they do. And they're the people that probably pick up because we do it day to day. So we don't really, take much notice of what what is annoying and what's not up you know you probably just that's the job there's no other way to do it so we just do it that way and then they go they might look at it and go why would you do it like that you can when you can do it like this and you go and so you know the best thing yeah is probably for them to see it and then 
they can make that process a lot easier. Yep. Well, that sounds like a, um, a really good kind of call to action here for anyone listening to the podcast that if they have some ideas for work in this space, it sounds like you're pretty open to collaboration or, you know, finding ways to get more data and, and experiment uh, in, in different ways with the tech you've already built and the setup you guys already have. So where can people find you? Um, how can they get in touch with you or how can they learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so um, we're called Crown Agriculture and probably email is the best way to get in touch or, or, or even just by phone. Um, so, yeah, it's just william at crownagriculture.com.au or, yeah. or you can get in touch with Hamish, who's hamish at crownagriculture.com.au. So that's probably the easiest way. Yeah, well, we know they can't find or you. Or by phone. They can't find you on Twitter because yeah. you don't respond to them. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make myself available on Twitter then. <laughs> Good. Well, that's the win out of today then. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Will, Will, <laughs> Will, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating. Love what you guys are up to. Um, and hopefully some collaborations can come out of this. I think you guys have built a really strong base here. Lots of lessons learned for others thinking about kind of going on a similar journey. Um, so hopefully there's some value there and, and looking forward to seeing how how the system turns out and, and what kinds of other businesses um, you guys can hopefully make work. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of AgTech So What. You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.